It's showtime. Showtime. Welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to Sons of Smoke Cigar Cast. I'm Drew. We got Mo. Hello. We got David West again today. Good afternoon. And joining us this week is James Brown from Avija Negra, uh, as well as Black Label Trading Company and Blackwork Studio. How's it going, guys? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being on. Um, we're actually all, uh, I think everybody's firing up the MBK. I know Dave is. I am. Mm-hmm. Yep. Me too. Awesome. Um, man, real fast, what's kind of the story? We were kind of talking before you got on, but what's uh, what's the story with the MBK? Um, you know, it's just a cigar that I've been working on for probably almost the last two years, and it's kind of changed up quite a bit over that time, but... Um, just had an idea for the name, the Natural Born Killer, for a while ago, and just kind of started tweaking different blends, to kind of fit that that profile for it, and ended up with the, what you have for the MBK now. And so it's just been in a cigar that I've been working on and smoking for a while, and then finally when we decided to do the Blackworks, it just made sense to, to put it out with that. And that, that's your first one out of Blackworks? Yes. Okay, that's that's kind of what Dave uh, was saying. He thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, so you're the owner of uh, a Via Negra as well as the Black Label uh, Trading Company, as well as now Blackworks Studio. Um, how'd that all come about? What's kind of the the quick history? I know most people kind of know, but how did how did that all get started? Yeah, kind of quick history of how we ended up in the cigar business. Um, I'd always been a cigar smoker. Um, my, my background was in the wine industry, so I was doing that for a lot of years. But um, after that, my wife and I ended up in Central America operating a, a luxury adventure travel company and just fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time in Nicaragua. And as I did, I kind of spent all my downtime in SLE learning as much as I could about tobacco and blending cigars and making cigars. And uh, long story short, ended up blending um, a line of cigars for our travel company that people would, would smoke on the trips and you know at the end of the trips everyone fell in love with the product and wanted to know where to buy it afterwards and that kind of sparked the idea um, to go into cigars full time. So that was kind of how that started and then spent probably two and a half almost three years developing Black Label. You know what it was going to be what it was going to look like what the cigars were going to be and then uh, finally ended up launching it in 2013. Awesome, man. And then, yeah, and then uh, go ahead. Know, we, uh, we launched Black Label. It was great. You know, went full force with six lines. And, you know, after uh, about a year and a half of that, we decided to go for it with our own factory over on there. Wow. Awesome. And then Black Works just came out, is it this year? Or was it? Yeah, Blackworks came out in December. Okay. Um, and, you know, uh, the thing with us is, you know, Black Label's been in the market for about three years now, and we definitely have our core group of, of clients and fans that, you know, love it for what it is. Um, so we didn't want to change it up too much. And so with having the factory, you know, our idea was to use that kind of as an umbrella for us to be able to look at developing new lines and new brands that come out of Oveja Negra. So Blackworks is just the first of of that project. Awesome. Awesome. So what, what kind of stuff are you going to try, James, with, uh, let's just say, Blackworks that maybe 
Yeah, are you going for different profiles, different, are you trying to reach different customers than your, than your, I guess, natural black label base? I, you know, what are you trying to, I guess, what's your goal for, for Blackwords? Yeah, I think yes to both of those. So, I mean, we wanted it to have a completely different look and feel, not only from a marketing standpoint, but we wanted the cigars to be very different as well. So I think uh, the approach we took with Blackworks was just hitting a completely different flavor profile in a completely different market um, than Black Label. Sure. Um, I've got some questions here. Um, we'll just break into um, Kyle from, uh, I believe this is off of Facebook. He's a big fan. Yeah, J- James, if you ever want to adopt anybody for one reason or another, I think <laughs> Kyle would be first in line. Uh, Kyle, if you're listening, um, thank you very much for, for all the questions. He had some great questions he sent us on Facebook yesterday. Um, so he, I'll keep mine. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get him your contact info. Yeah. <laughs> Um, big fan, Black Label, Black Works. Um, let's see. He's excited, of course, about the podcast. He'd like to know, uh, obviously, how you got into the business. Um, we kind of touched that. Uh, he wanted to know how you learned, um, how you learned to blend. Uh, you know, just trial and error. Like I said, it's, so before we decided to launch Black Label, I spent... Almost three and a half, almost four years um, in and out of SLE uh, with a guy named Armando Leva, who's now our production manager at Oveja Negra. And he just kind of, you know, I shadowed him for a long time and he taught me everything that I know about tobacco and blending tobacco. So it's just a very long process. So, you know, make a lot of mistakes in the beginning and then just, you know, over time you just learn what works and what doesn't work. Awesome. Um, some more questions from him as well. Um, he wants to know what's your all-time favorite uh, cigar within your own brand and then throughout, you know, favorite of all time other brands as well. And that's tough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite within your own brand? You know, I'm, it's hard to say. I, I'm kind of always more in love with the newest one just because that's kind of, you know, what what I've been working on more recently and that's yeah. what I'm really excited about. So with our own stuff, I think that's kind of how it goes. It's kind of whatever has been made but hasn't been put in the market yet that's still kind of, you know, kicking around the factory that we're testing and that we, you know, it's kind of that hallelujah moment when you get really excited about a cigar. So whatever one happens to be in that spot at that time, I think that's usually what... I would call my favorite. Awesome. Do you have any? Um, Go ahead, man. In our general production stuff, I would say Last Rites definitely holds the high spot just because that's the first cigar that I ever blended on my own. Um, and I kind of blended it to fit what I would consider everything I like in my wheelhouse. Um, so that's definitely up there. And then I think the MBK as well is a really well-made cigar. I really love the blend, love what happened with the final product with that. So... For the Blackwork stuff, I really, I think the MBK stands out to me. Yeah, I'm digging it right now. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, this thing's awesome. <laughs> not gonna, yeah, not to fluff you or anything, but yeah, this thing's great. Um, so, so do you smoke? I mean, do you have a favorite, like, like Fuente or uh, My Father? Do you smoke, do you smoke anything like that? Do you have, that's your a go-to maybe when you're even in the States or at a different shop or something? 
you know, I do smoke other stuff. I wouldn't say that I have a go-to, um, mostly because I just like to kind of know what's going on with other people. Yeah. So there's not really like a cigar that I, I go to. I'm just usually, if I'm smoking someone else's stuff, I'm usually trying to go with whatever's new that they're putting out just to kind of see like, you know, you know, what these guys are doing and, and what the cigars are like and, and all that stuff. But as far as factories and producers go, you know, I've always been a huge fan of Tatawahe. I think everything Pete does, I really enjoy. Awesome. Um, I like most things out of my father. Um, you know, and then the cigar that got me into cigars, you know, is uh, Padron Anniversario. So, I mean, I just, I, I don't think you can argue with, with what Padron does. I, I love their product. Okay. And I think it's great that they've stayed true to it for so long. Awesome. Awesome. Um, go ahead, man. I'm not man. a big drinking guy, but I have enjoyed quite a few Fuentes, you know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think that's kind of what he was looking for, is just, just what you like out there. Um, he wants to know your thoughts on, about the current success of the boutique cigars, um, where the industry will go maybe in the future. What's, what's your thoughts of, of where that is, where it's going? Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of hard to say. I would say where I see it right now is we're kind of – I know it seems like boutiques have been out for a while now, um, but I think we're really getting to the point right now in the industry where – we're kind of seeing who's going to stay around, you know, and who's, who's kind of forged enough to, to make an impact and, who, and, you know, create an actual company and a brand that's going to be out there for a while. Um, and I think we're going to see less and less of kind of the, the one-off uh, type brands that we've been seeing over the last few years. Um, so, you know, it's, I hope that it, it keeps progressing in the way that it is. I hope that people keep, getting out there and taking the risk and making cigars. Um, you know, I just hope that, you know, long-term more of them can kind of stick, you know, we're not going to see so many come and go, but I think it's, I think it's tough. You know, we're all, we're all in this business together and we're all fighting for, you know, the same shelf space and we're all fighting with each other, not only each other, but the big guys as well. So it's kind of interesting. I think, one thing that stands out to me is that um, that I think is really awesome is, you know, if you probably would have asked anybody from General or Altidus 10 years ago, you know, if they thought they were going to lose a certain percentage of retail space to small boutique brands, I think they probably would have kind of laughed about it. So I think it's great that that's happening and consumers are receptive to it, um, you know, and hopefully it just stays that way. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> You know, we were talking last... Go ahead, Dave. We were talking last podcast, we were sandboxing, like, some of the worst moments, you know, some of your worst fears, your, the rumors going on with the FDA and all that kind of stuff. Did you make yeah. any backup plans in case the worst things you heard actually came to light? No, zero. <laughs> we're just kind of like, <laughs> we just take it day by day, you know. It's, for me, I mean, you know, there's nothing we can do to change what happens, so... You know, our kind of our mindset is just keep going about our business the way we're doing it. And, you know, if it happens, it happens. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, and the big problem for us is just the limbo, you know. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. I know either way, you know. Even if it's the worst-case scenario, I'd rather just know, you know, right now so that we could mm -hmm. possibly make plans for the future. But as it stands now, I mean, you really you just can't. 
you know, I mean, we're not definitely not going to slow things down here, um, you know, just with the, the idea that it may happen. So, right. And you also mentioned shelf space a minute ago. Who do you feel like Black Label specifically competes against for shelf space? Do you have anybody that is just a direct competitor? Um, you know, I don't know. Kind of everybody, really. I mean, we're all <laughs> we're all in the same boat. You know, I mean, it's and it's not like we're we're not all friends. You know, that's the cool thing about it. I think with this industry is that yes, we all do compete, but you know, at the end of the day. I haven't met anybody in this industry making cigars that I wouldn't say is, is a friend, you know. So that's that's kind of cool about it. But um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's really just about price point. You know, you're 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 fighting for the for that one customer that's within your price point. You know, whether they pick up a a Monte Cristo or a Roma Craft, you know, if they're spending seven eight bucks, they're spending seven eight bucks. And if it's not on your product, then you know that's that's what we're all fighting for is to get it in the consumer's hands. Mm-hmm. But you cool. know, I think I think the problem that we're that we're facing not really facing, but I think the thing that we're seeing change a lot in the industry in that regard is, you know, a lot of brands like mine or, or whoever's, you know, we have what we consider a core line. And I think what we're seeing across the board over the last year or two is that, you know, people are kind of gravitating away from smoking the same cigar consistently. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think what we're all competing against and what we're all fighting for is to, you know, have that new product out there that is going to pique the consumer's interest and have them, you know, gravitate towards that. So, you know, with Coraline products, not only are we competing with everything else on the shelf, but we're also competing with whatever new product, whatever new limited release, you know, whatever other company has out for that moment. And that seems right. to be where consumers are, are gravitating towards right now is always going, you know, if I'm going to spend my 10 bucks, am I going to spend it on something that I've smoked 20 times or do I want to try the new limited release that everybody's talking about? So, Right. Yeah. What about a targeted audience? Um, your branding, I'm not 100% sure, but I would assume speaks to certain people. You know, do you have a, a target audience that you're trying to reach out and grab with that kind of branding? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely when we started it, we were, you know, very specific in our branding and marketing that, you know, for me as a consumer, when I walk into a cigar shop and look at, you know, a thousand to two thousand facings, there just wasn't a whole lot that kind of spoke to me in terms of, you know, just whatever my style or whatever. But so we definitely wanted to have something out there that was unique and stood out off the shelf and, you know, hopefully appealed to the type of consumer that I was. Um, and so it started out that way. But I would say what we've seen over the last few years across the board is, I mean, we get everybody. You know, we get biker guys that are stoked about the artwork and then that gravitates all the way over to, like, corporate weekend warrior guys that, you know, <laughs> get into it. So, um we started out thinking we were going to be targeted, but we've been really lucky that the the branding has kind of been accepted across the board. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys do you guys get a lot of accountants too that are really into it? We do. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You know, to answer uh, to say, uh, James, in my experience, just seeing the guys that have really enjoyed your cigars um, tend to be Roma Craft guys, like the Cro-Magnon guys, stuff like that, um, as well as Tatawahe guys. I feel like 
a lot of your stuff seems to to really kind of hit towards those. Um, but would you agree that, or would you? What would you say on you know when we talk about boutique, we talk about the Alta distance stuff like okay, yeah, in ten years, oh no, that'll never happen. It seems like there's a generational gap almost because I see kind of like you know let's say you're like late forties, early fifties, and up type of smoker kind of. You know, maybe they smoked Romeo back in the day. Now they're smoking Davidoff or, or some of the Padrones. And then I feel like you get into the younger generation, and they're really about that next thing, that next boutique thing, versus maybe some of the more established brands. What, what do you do? You kind of see that, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, I think one of the coolest things about the cigar industry. I mean, a couple things. Number one. You know, as the FDA and other, you know, city and state ordinances crack down, you know, we're seeing a real big rise in cigar consumers, which is great, you know, to see that. And I think the other thing is, is that we're seeing exactly what you said, a next generation of cigar smokers. You know, we're getting a lot of younger guys that, you know, they don't really want to smoke the cigar that their dad smoked or their grandfather smoked. You know, they're, they're new into the industry, they're new into the hobby, and you know, they're wanting to try stuff that's different and, you know, has a, you know, kind of a younger feel to it. And, you know, it's, I always use the example of, you know, craft beer. You know, it's kind of the same mindset, right? Like, if you're going to buy something, you know, a lot of people in this category that we're talking about would rather spend their money on something that's a small production, you know, handcrafted product rather than a big mass-produced uh, cigar. Which, so I think we're definitely seeing that change you know and mm-hmm. that i think that the older style consumer is definitely kind of fading out yeah i, I agree and i think Seems it's about like it. well, dave did you have more oh no i just said it seems about like it yeah dave are you zookeeping again today <laughs> no I don't, I don't think that's me that, that oh. must be uh that's, james it must that's, be a, a negra. that's the sweet sounds of nicaragua baby <laughs> Yeah, it is. Actually. We have, uh, yeah. So anytime the factory is closed, we have a large group of birds that like to hang out in our courtyard. <laughs> I think everybody has uh, somebody who has talked about the birds. I was so I was enjoying it. It's soothing. It's, it's very soothing. Yeah, it's peaceful. It is. Yeah. It's like Yanni. Um, <laughs> When I was there in February, what really blew me away was the attention to detail. And I know uh, we spoke about it before, but um, what's something else you do? Like the cap itself, it took almost a minute to apply the cap, whereas other places were doing the wrapper and the cap all together in a minute. You know, that that's sacrificing time and money and everything else for that attention to detail. And ultimately, I would imagine a better experience. What's something else that you guys do that people may not know about that just adds that extra little bit of uh, perfection to your cigars? Um, you know, I mean, I think we just we take that approach in everything that we do. You know, our, our idea is, is not to, you know, make five million cigars a year. You know, we just want to put out a product that's unique and, and that's made to, you know, if you're going to do something, do it the best that you can. And that's kind of our approach with everything from the tobacco that we select and use, you know, to the way that we bunch our cigars and the way we roll our cigars. So, you know, everything we do is very focused and it's, uh, it's time consuming and detail oriented. But at the end of the day, we feel like we put out, you know, the best product that we can. And that's, that's our goal. So, 
Hell yeah. James, I think one of the questions was that we got, um, if you could collaborate with anybody in the industry, who would it be and what kind of blend would you make or try to make or, you know, who would it be, I guess? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you had to collaborate. Yeah, had to. <laughs> had to pick somebody. Uh, I, would say I would enjoy doing something with Skip. I mean, we get along great, you know. We're kind of both the only, you know, full-time gringos down here, and we're both <laughs> the only full-time gringos running our own factory as well. So I think I think we have a lot that we can relate to with each other. Um, you know, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that would be kind of an interesting thing coming together. You know, taking both of our approaches with our factories and and seeing what comes out of that. I would love to see that. Yeah, that, man. That, that, would, that would be, be impressive. That, that, that would be epic. I, I mean, Skip, if you Too bad you already made the gringo. gringo. That would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got some others here. Um, so back from Kyle again. Um, he talks about the uh, black work. Doing the Killer Bee, the Green Hornet. Um where does your creativity, inspiration come from to do to do different cigars like that? Waiter, um, you know it's it's kind of weird. I mean, I'm, it comes from all over the place. You know, I'm just I'm a very visual person. I'm you know I was a painter for a long time, and you know I've been in the art scene for a while, and so a lot of it is visual. A lot of times I'll get an idea, you know, for in terms of a look or marketing for a cigar before I even have the cigar that, that kind of fits the, the mold for that. Um, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. I smoke a cigar and it just, you know, kind of speaks to me and we, we come up with what it is from there. Um, but, you know, inspiration comes from everything, like movies, music, anything really. So, um, but I think we're just, with our cigars, with our blending style, we're just always trying to kind of push the boundary of what's next and really try to use tobaccos in a unique way. Um, you know, with like with the killer bee, with the linear cap and, and the green hornet, uh -huh. you know, we just, we're just constantly just trying to come up with something unique and interesting. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So it's, uh, it's a constant process. Um, but, um, you know, unfortunately the, you know, we can't put out everything that we come up with, you know, in a, in a timely manner. So, I mean, we literally, I have, like, box designs, label designs for, you know, probably the next two years worth of sticks to come out and blends as well, just kind of sitting on the shelf ready to, ready to see the light of day. Wow. Awesome. Wow. I, I love the Green Hornet. How much of the, um, that wrap, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the cap, um, accentuations, you know, like you had the Connecticut on the uh, Killer Bee and then the uh, Candela on the Green Hornet. How much of that is impacting the taste in the cap, that artwork? Um, you know, on the Killer Bee, I think that the Connecticut does add a little bit of sweetness to the, to the end. Um, on the uh, Green Hornet, it's really that Candela foot. Um, yeah. You know, it, it just gives that initial blast of Candela flavor. And it, mm -hmm. for me, it just kind of sets the tone for the rest of the cigar um, in terms of the flavor profile. Um, but I think that, you know, that's kind of the thing that we were going for is we wanted it to 
not necessarily have that full candela flavor, but we loved just that little bit of it and what it did for the the rest of the cigar. You know, and I think that's Absolutely. pretty unique. You know, you don't see that a lot. Um, with just kind of giving a quick hit of a particular flavor, and then you move on to something else. Yeah, I loved it. I'm a big fan. Um, did you have more there, Dave? Of course. <laughs> Get um, it. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe it was uh, Jared from The Noise that wanted this one asked, what is your favorite tobacco leaves to work with, and what are your least favorite? Um, I'm sorry, know, this I'm, was from I'm, Estevan. That's Traveling Sax, man, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got it wrong, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I guess in terms of filler leaf, you know, Overall, I love Nicaraguan tobacco. I mean, it's only within this last year that I've started experimenting with other tobaccos from, you know, Dominican and the United States. Um, so I, I just have a passion for Nicaraguan tobacco. And if I had to pick one that just really checked all the boxes for me, it's, you know, SLE Lajero. I think it's one of the most flavorful and unique tobaccos out there. Um, so I pretty much try to work with that in most things that we do. Um, in terms of wrapper leaf tobacco, um, you know, I love Ecuador. It's just, it's so versatile and, and gets such great quality out of Ecuador wrapper in terms of burn and presentation and the flavor mm -hmm. profile of it. I, I, I just love it. You know, I, I love that we can work with so many different variations of the same wrapper and get, you know, really unique profiles out of each one of them. And I believe that's what we're smoking right now, right? Ecuador and Habano, maybe. Is it a Scuro? For the yeah, it's a dark Ecuador Habano, yeah. Cool. Um, since you mentioned Esteli, we had a question a few podcasts back from Brad wanting to know like, if in the fields they plant beans and coffee and other things, does it impact the flavor at all what's planted when it's not tobacco season? Um, normally here you don't see a lot of that, so... Fields in SLE, um, when it's not growing season, I mean, the fields just kind of are let to go wild. Um, and then they come, you know, till everything up and, and get ready to plant tobacco again. So okay. most of the fields here in and around SLE, you don't see a lot of uh, other things planted when they're not growing tobacco. Oh, okay. They don't do a rotation. No, I, I wouldn't imagine. I wouldn't imagine that it would impact the plant very much at all. Now, for um, the tasting notes, let's say you have Esteli tobacco. What's going to be the difference between Lajero, Seco, Viso? How would somebody know if they're just looking at three leaves? You know, the same plant, same field, but different primings. Um, in terms of finished processed tobacco. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Well, the main difference, one thing is going to be size. Seca leaves are normally going to be much larger. But the main thing when differentiating tobacco, finished filler tobacco, is going to be texture. So sometimes the difference between a Viso and Lajero is a very fine line um, in terms of texture and thickness of the leaf. Um, it's it that's really what determines so it's not about the size of the leaves not about the color it's really about the texture of the tobacco so much so that gk one of the large processors here actually employs blind people to separate the filler tobaccos 
um, because it's not influenced by size or color. It's influenced by the texture of the leaf. Wow, huh. that's cool. Do you taste any difference? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you, I mean, obviously, Lajero is going to be, you know, the final cut on the plant, and you're going to, it's going to be a little bit of a smaller leaf. Um, but once again, sometimes Vizos can be right around the same size. Um, but, you know, in Lajeros, you're just dealing with, with a majority of the flavor and the majority of the strength um, that you get out mm -hmm. of a cigar. So Lajero leaves obviously tend to be a little bit higher in nicotine. Um, you know, and, and that's a tough thing for a cigar blender is you always want to get that balance between flavor and strength. And your more flavorful tobaccos tend to have more uh, strength to them as well. Um, so, yeah, the way I describe Lajero is, to me, yes, it's a strong tobacco, um, but it's a very pretty tobacco. So you're going to get a lot of nuances in there, a lot of flavor that goes along with that strength. Um, I think a lot of Vizos, um, we work a lot with Vizo from Ometepe. Vizo, to me, is it, it's one of those tobaccos that has to be used a little bit more sparingly, in my opinion. Um, it's very, it does have a lot of strength to it, but it's not quite as pretty. So it's, it's a little bit more rough around the edges, um, in terms of flavor. And then Seco's, you know, you're going to get Esteli Seco to me is, is a beautiful tobacco. Um, very rich, lots of creaminess to it. Um, very soft, subtle flavors. Um, you know, and the, the profiles vary obviously from region to region, but you know, it, it's that nice, soft roundness that you get out of a cigar, you know, you get a lot of that from the Seco tobacco. Hmm. And one of the things I really like from you guys is you don't have a million facings of the same cigar. You don't have a bunch of different Vitolas to take up space. So yeah. when I see your cigars in the shop, I see lots of your cigars versus one cigar and, you know, 12 Vitolas. But do you have a, a certain Vitola that's your favorite? This is also from the Sax Man. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a smaller ring gauge guy. Um, and for me, anything that I blend, like to sample tobacco, I like to do in, in like a five by 46 or 48 at the most. Um, reason being is I feel like that's a, a really good, um, balance and comparison of filler tobacco versus wrapper in terms of the actual flavors of the cigar. So I think that's, to me, that's kind of the sweet spot. Um, and then, obviously, if we're going to blend anything smaller or larger, the, we have to kind of tweak the blend according to size. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's our philosophy. You know, we make the cigars in the sizes that we feel like they smoke the best in. Um, you know, that's, you know, with the Blackworks stuff especially, you know, which is why we're, we only offer the MBK in one size because we feel like that's what it works best in. When um, so we kind of talked about this before, but when you when you do a different size of the same cigar, like you just talked about, you blend it up one size, and then you're going to do it in three or four different sizes. How do you adjust? You don't just throw more filler in there. How do you, do you adjust it and smoke it to try and make it taste the same as your original, or how do you do you kind of reblend yeah, that to? I, mean, I think inevitably you're going to have some variance in the, the flavor profile of the blend between Vitolas. Mm -hmm. um, but you do have to blend the cigar again, specifically for the Vitola that you're working with. Um, 
and you do have to tweak the quantities of tobaccos that you're working with to kind of as best you can hit that very similar flavor profile. Um, but yeah, it is it is all kind of going back to the drawing board and, and tweaking it until until it seems right. You know, and, and we kind of, you know, I think what a lot of people don't know is that that's a constant process in making cigars. So, you know, anytime that we're switching over from one purchase of tobacco to the other, you know, you're going to get variances in flavor and strength, um, you know, with tobacco, I mean, pretty consistently. So, you know, if we do a run of black label cigars, for example, and then you know, we're not making black label, we're making something else for a month, and then we go back to black label, we literally take that tobacco that we're working with at that specific time and re-blend every black label cigar before we start that production, just to make sure, okay, you know, the Viso Matepe this time has a little bit more spice to it, so what do we need to do to kind of tone it down, or, you know, whatever the case is. So it, it's, a, it's actually a constant process of tweaking the cigars to make sure that they're what they should be. Awesome. Dave? So somewhere you have a, a super memory bank, a palette memory bank, huh? Um, well, we have what we call the Bible at the factory, which has all of our breakdowns of blends and proportions and all that stuff. So um, we, we go from that and start with what it was originally, see how the cigar smokes, and then if we're seeing a little bit of a variance in, you know, whatever profile, then we we kind of start to tweak it from there. Awesome. Mo, would you- James, do you, do you guys have uh, the same – do you guys typically try to work with the same farmers or farms or um, is that it? Like do you try to keep the same consistent supplier or do you guys kind of open it up or what do you – what's your method out uh, or I guess – for, yeah, for filler tobaccos, we do stick with the same group of people. So we consistently buy from the same producers. Um, and the cool thing for us is with our size, we can actually buy from a lot of really good producers that don't grow enough tobacco for a lot of the larger factories to be interested in. Them. I got um, you. You know, so we're, we're buying tobacco in thousands of pounds. You know, large factories are buying tens to a hundred thousand pounds at a time so that has actually been really good for us um, in terms of getting those relationships with smaller producers and, and keeping them so um, sure. with filler tobacco it's very consistent um, wrapper leaf you know it depends Ecuador you know we buy from the same same person all the time um, but then if we're working with something new, you know, Pennsylvania or if we need Connecticut or whatever the case is, then we kind of have to shop around and see, you know, what's available in the market. Awesome. Um, Mo, Dave, can somebody? I do one more? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right. So, James, let's talk Sims, man. A little uh, while back, a couple months ago, I believe, uh, Pete posted a picture of, like, some different stems he found from different cigars. And yep. I know some people will say that stem, you know, stems add flavor. Some say it's an annoyance. What are the upsides and the downsides of stems and cigars? Um, well, I don't know if there's – obviously the downside would be stems that are too large, okay? So, um, yes, there's going to be stems in the cigars. Um, that's just the way that it goes. And in my opinion, the stems do help with flavor and aroma. They also help with um, construction of the cigar, um, 
So you're going to have stems in a cigar. The, the problem happens is when, you know, try to explain it the best I can um, without a visual, but, you know, when we do a bunch for a cigar, you know, we, we fold up the leaves in the hand, and then we, we do what's called a break, right? So the bunchero will break off the bottom, break off the top of that bunch, um, and throw it down, and basically pick through that um, and put back the larger pieces of leaf into the filler um, throughout the cigar. Now the problem is, is when you break off the ends, that's where your largest stems are going to be, is on the, the very tips of the leaves. And so a lot of times what happens is some of those larger stems, which shouldn't be put back into the cigar, end up getting put back into the cigar. So hmm. stems themselves aren't an issue, large stems that shouldn't be there anyway, or what cause cigars to get plugged and, and things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. In the grain industry, we call it foreign material. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it is, yeah. Is, is there a diameter of stem that you would say, okay, this is definitely too big? Um, you know, nothing that's specific, but, you know, you're when you look at, you know, also it has a lot to do with the, the Vitola that you're, you're making, you know. If you're dealing with a smaller ring gauge, you know, you really want to be cautious on, you know, what ends up in there in terms of stems and size, so... Um, it just, it kind of depends on the cigar, but for the most part, you know, when you look at a filler leaf, if you're dealing with the very bottom section of that leaf, the part that would be closest to the, to the plant, you know, that's going to have the largest, thickest piece of stem, and ideally that would be removed. Okay. Which, you, since you touched on that, you're, you mentioned the favorite Vitola to blend with. Is, is that your, your favorite Vitola to smoke as well? Um, What's your favorite yeah. Vitola to smoke, I guess? <laughs> I think probably kind of like a classic Corona or, or a long Corona would be right in my wheelhouse, you know. Um, even a little bit larger ring gauge, like 46. So anything between like 5 to 5.5 or 6 by 46 is kind of my go-to cigar. Awesome, awesome. Dave, did you? I know you got more. Uh Obviously. <laughs> so, uh, when we were talking at your shop, we brought up uh, Cuban tobacco, you know, and at the time, there were all these rumors like, oh, I can't wait for my favorite blender to get access to Cuban tobacco, and other people were saying, no, it's impossible, they'll never let other people use it, and uh, you disclosed that, you know, y'all can practically get Cuban tobacco anytime you want to, right? Is there... Um, yeah, I mean, there is availability here, I mean... You know, not very much of it, but yeah, I mean, if you wanted to source it, then you could. Do you think that'll be a Blackwork Studio project down the road? No. Or is that just not, that's not in your it's desire at all? It's just not my thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge Cuban cigar fan, and it's, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if the tobacco was stellar, then maybe, um, but... I don't know, for me, to compare, you know, this is just my personal preference, but to compare Cuban tobacco to Nicaraguan tobacco, I mean, I'll take Nicaragua any day of the week, you know. It's just, yeah. it's kind of yeah. the profile for what we do, and, and you know, that's, that's why we make the cigars the way that we do, and the flavors that we do, because I love the richness, intensity, kind of almost gritty, raw flavor of 
Nicaraguan tobacco. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, I haven't really found anything comparable in, in other places. You know, we work with some Dominican tobaccos, but it's it's when we want to, you know, change the profile kind of significantly from what we normally do. And I like the tobaccos right. for that reason, but it's nothing that I would, you know, go crazy to, to try to work with. Okay. And if you could go back in time, let's say five years, and tell younger James anything, what would it be? Uh, don't go into the cigar business because you're going to be really poor. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. It's all for love of the game, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like anything, you know. Any Anytime you do, uh, my wife and I have always had our own businesses for the last 14 years, you know, and it's, we still never really have learned that lesson that, you know, it's going to cost you, you know, 10 times more than you imagined and, you know, you're not going to see a paycheck for five years or whatever. So it is, I mean, it's definitely, it's passion, you know, and it's, it's one thing that, you know, people always ask me, you know, somebody looking to start a cigar company today, like, what would you tell them? You know, and that's the thing I would tell them, you know, dude, it's tough, man. It's so much harder than I ever imagined. And we can vouch for that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's just one of those industries and that's why I think, you know, everybody that's out there doing it, everybody gets along because we're all in the same boat. You know, we, it's a passion driven industry. You know, it's not a money driven industry because, you know, you're dealing with a product that is very expensive to make very expensive to import and you know you're dealing with margins on that product that are extremely low uh compared to other things and um you know but we do it because we love it and that's what kind of what drives us so i think that's kind of the cool thing is we all have that mutual respect for each other because we know what's going on with the other people james do you have a do you have an idol in the industry somebody you look up to um, you know, I don't know. Not, not really. <laughs> Did you before you started stuff? Um, cause you said you've always smoked cigars, but. Yeah. I mean, I think I wouldn't say idle, but I've always had a really deep respect for what Pete was able to do. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the world of what we consider boutique cigars, he was definitely, you know, kind of a, a founder of that. And I think at the time that Pete came out, and did what he did um, to get, you know, the reception and, and to be able to build the brand as much as he has, um, you know, long before kind of the boutique thing even got off the ground. I mean, I think you have to, you know, you know, give him, you know, huge respect for that. So um, I think that, you know, not only me, but a lot of people that are in the industry now doing what we're doing, probably you could say we may not be here if it wasn't for Pete Johnson. So I definitely have to give him a lot of props for that. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think he showed that the industry was ready for something different. And by his ability to get the product out there and get a positive, you know, response from it and and have it build uh, the way that it did, I think that was kind of the the beginning of, of what we're all doing now. Yeah. Mo, did you have? I think, Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, that speaks to, you know, uh, maybe a tip of the hat to the to Don Pepin as well, to take him, 
you know, and actually run with it, you know, to give him the opportunity too. I think is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And to, sure. you know, and to work with him. Um, but that, that's a pretty cool story. How I think that whole thing went down um, when he met Pepin and all that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I agree, James. I think what he's done probably paved the way for a lot of guys. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, Dave, I know you got more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you released with six uh, different cigars. Not six different Vitolas, but six separate cigars, right? Yeah, six lines under the Black Label portfolio. How was that received? Did that um, cause any issues for you, or was it just, you know, fanfare from the very beginning? Um, you know, it's kind of weird, because... Basically, we just did the opposite of what everybody we knew in the industry said we should do. So when I talked to people that I knew in the industry and told them that, you know, we're coming out with these six lines and this is our brand, you know, everybody just kind of shook their head and we're like, you know, no way, don't do it. Like, there's no way a retailer is going to give you, you know, 12 facings or whatever. Um, you know, but our, our, our goal and our focus with Black Label was not to be you know, just another guy making a cigar as a hobby. You know, we wanted it to be, you know, this is our brand. This is legit. You know, we're not, you know, just doing a one-off here. Like, um, and that's why we decided to go ahead and launch with all six. And it, in the end of the day, it really worked out for us. And I think we were perceived in the way that we wanted to be. You know, people saw us as a brand. They saw us as a presence in the industry. And it really made a, mm -hmm. a good footprint mm -hmm. for us. Yeah, I guess if you're going to jump in, do it with both feet, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's that's kind of the thing. Is it's the hardest thing I think in this industry is, you know, getting getting retailers to, you know, at least in the beginning, is getting retailers to give you a shot. You know, that's you know, trying to convince somebody that you know this new product is really gonna gonna work for for their shop and that people are gonna want to buy it and all this other stuff, and so. You know, for us to come with, you know, an actual brand um, and give the retailer a lot of options actually worked out really good. Yeah, very cool. James, you know, one thing that kind of Drew and I have seen, too, in our, I guess, infancy here is um, almost like a regional difference in taste. Um, you know, for example, in Texas, uh, you know, our Max Press sold out you know, pretty quickly that was popular, you know, up here in Chicago, the Habano is done just as well, if not even a little bit better. Um, and it's kind of interesting, I guess, do you, you know, and crowned heads has done this, you know, where they kind of make these regional type of, you know, the Tennessee waltz, the Texas, the yellow rose for Texas. Is that something that you potentially see yourself doing? Like maybe, um, switching up a profile to try to appeal to maybe, uh, a market that you may not currently be in? Um, you know, it's a possibility. I mean, I think I think what you're saying is correct. I mean, I think not only do you see it regionally, but I mean, you know, you can take a city like Houston and go to a shop in one side of town, and they sell a ton of Lanceros, and go to a shop on the other side of town, and all they sell is 660s or bigger. You know, right. so um, it definitely changes a lot. Um, but yeah, I think that that we have a lot of. Um, ability with the factory to work on on a lot of new stuff now and I, I definitely think that 
you'll be seeing some interesting stuff coming from us. It could be kind of along those lines. I mean, we've definitely, since we're from Texas, have wanted to do kind of a Texas-only stick for a while. So, um, yeah, you may see that in the future. But um, like you know, it, it's tough to gauge the different markets and, and what works where. Yeah. Uh, Mode. Are six by sixties here to stay? We, we were talking about this on our last podcast, and, and you know, and actually, um, Dion from Illusioni was in town uh, in Chicago last weekend. Had the ability to sit with him and kind of talk about stuff. And the six by sixty came up. Then you know, we talked about it on the podcast, and we're kind of just like, where did this come from? And is it here to stay? And I mean, you know, especially you as somebody who seems to like smaller ring gauges. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, we have the same conversation in every uh, black label business meeting that we have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like for us, we launched in 2013, and in 2013, you know, bigger ring gauges were hot, which is why we look, we did do a 660 and everything, um, and we went with a 54 for our robustos, um, and it was really well received. Um, but, you know, we've definitely seen a change over the last, you know, two and a half years, almost three years, is that, you know, the 660s have kind of, you know, fizzled a little bit, but then we also have shops that only carry our sticks in a 6x60. So, right. once again, you know, it's just regional. I would say that, I don't know that it'll die out, um, but it seems to me what I'm seeing is that the 770s is killing the 660, not smaller ring gauges. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think the big ring gauge guy is going even bigger, you know? Yeah, so I think that's the progression that we're seeing is that people that smoke 660s are going to pick up a 770. I think it's just that's natural. And do, and do you think that that's like in, in people's mind that they're getting more for their money? I mean, do you think it's a value proposition? I guess that's the only way that I could explain it in my head. But then it's like, I look at Churchill's, and I think like Churchill's are 10% of the market now. So Churchill's have kind of died out, but these larger ring gauges and sizes have kind of picked up the slack a little bit, it seems like. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, I say this all the time, but we probably, I get messages constantly. It's kind of slowed down a bit, but over the last year, I mean, we have had people hammering us to make a 770, you know? <laughs> And my, and my thing is, is like, look, what what cigar do you smoke in a 770? Okay, you smoke the Asylum. Look, my 770 is not going to be eight bucks. It's going to be like sixteen. <laughs> yeah. Still going to buy yeah. it? You know what I mean? Like, because mm -hmm. that's yeah. just what it's cost. So, um, I think I think definitely it's kind of a, a idea that you know you're paying. You know, between seven to nine bucks, and you're getting a lot of tobacco for your money. Um, and you know, for whatever reason, that's some people's mindset. I mean, I, I I don't know that I've ever met anybody that's you know gone on and on about the flavor of a large ring gauge cigar. So <laughs> I would have to think that it is just the the value idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, that's kind of what I think too. Because I, yeah, I mean, I mean well, we talked about this. You gotta go, Dave. Yeah, I, I've got to go. The army's calling me. 
But it's been a pleasure, everybody. Thank you so much, James, for coming on. Thank you for always supporting the little guy. And uh, Drew and Mo, yep. you guys have a great podcast. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, buddy. Thank Appreciate you. it, man. Thank you all. Um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to go ahead and finish here. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you, you know, Drew and I and Dave, actually, we talked about kind of what our favorite Vitolas are. My, mine is Robusto, um, probably overall. Drew, I think you're kind of – you're Toro. You're a Toro guy. Yeah, I really like Toro. Um, Dave, I don't even remember. Um, it was, I think – and he might have been a Toro as well. Uh, yeah, he might have been. Um, but would you – like, and I guess we talked about yours, but do you think most consumers are kind of in that Robusto, maybe Toro, or do you think a lot of guys like the Coronas and things like that, Corona Gorda maybe? Um, I think it's changing a little bit. I mean, I think, I mean, you can't argue that, you know, number one selling Vitolas are going to be Robustos and Toros, you know, hands down, um, well above anything else. So, um, you know, and I don't know that it has much to do with how the cigars smoke in those Vitolas. I think a lot of it has to do with price and time that people are willing to commit to a cigar. That's a great Um, point. Yeah. But I do think overall, in general, you are seeing it a bit where people that do generally smoke a Robusto or Toro are going to be much more open to trying a Lancero or a Corona or, you know, something in a smaller ring gauge. It may not yes. be their everyday two cigar, but I think they do, yep. uh, they will smoke it and appreciate it for what it is. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, and it comes back to value, you know, Lanceros tend to be a little bit more expensive. Um, so mm-hmm. for somebody to spend, you know, nine to eleven dollars on a lancero they may prefer a toro or whatever but um i think it's you know i think people thought it was going to change a lot more over the last couple of years um you know there was a big thing where everybody thought ring gauges were just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller but um i think it's happening little by little but i don't think you'll see a huge shift in the industry to people going to much smaller ring gauges than a toro or a Robusto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, and I guess, um, you know, it's interesting too, we talk about, um, we talk a lot about on our podcast, our blog is predicated not only on, okay, how good is the cigar, but also the value proposition. And I, Drew and I get into this, you know, kind of, de- not I don't know, debate, but discussion with a lot of people, not only people, you know, that we meet, but also people that have come on the podcast. We think that the value proposition does affect your perception of a cigar greatly. You know, um, the Davidoff box press Nicaragua was a great example of that. And we talked about that last week. You know, it sets your expectations in our opinions. Um, and then you're either going to be disappointed or it could still be a great cigar, but because your expectations are so high because of the price tag, you may downplay it's, it's like, I guess how it hits your palate or whatever. What do you think about that? Do you think price plays a role in how people might look at your cigar? Um, I think it's two-sided. I mean, I think that, yes, price does play a role into it. Um, And I think from a consumer standpoint, I understand that. Um, But, you know, my background is in the wine industry, right? So Mm -hmm. when it comes to reviews, never will you hear a wine reviewer, you know, give a bottle of wine a 95 to a 98 score and say, but it was $150. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you just don't see that. Like, it's either a great bottle of wine or it's not. 
cost doesn't mm-hmm. come into play. You know, and mm-hmm. for me, I think um, I think with reviewers especially, I think that the cost should kind of, in my opinion, not really change the fact of whether the cigar was a great cigar or not. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, for me, it's like, did it taste good? Did it smoke well? Was it a great cigar? If yes, then yes. Whether it's eight dollars mm-hmm. or twelve dollars, to me, in my opinion, that shouldn't matter in terms of a review. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now, from a consumer standpoint and what their expectations are for what they're paying, I mean, I can see that for sure. But I also think that most consumers underestimate greatly what goes into the manufacturing and production of, of any cigar. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's probably true. Yeah. yeah, they don't know. Yeah? Yeah, you know, I mean, you're taking a product that's, you know, you're literally dealing with years from seed to cigar, you know? Mm-hmm. And the amount of man hours and the amount of people involved in, you know, the entire process of the tobacco and processing it and growing it and, you know, manufacturing it and exporting it and importing it and all the other stuff that goes into it, you know, to, to get a cigar on the shelf for, you know, between eight and ten bucks, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, too. Um, you know, we talked last week a little bit about the FDA regulations and things like that, and then we talked a little bit about it today. But, you know, one of the things that we saw, I don't remember if this was on, um, this was a CRA, the guy, the CRA guy did an interview with Cigar Aficionado, I think, and he said that because of the potential financial impact of the industry's um, loss on, I guess, it was over like $100 million, so then it had to have like some extra congressional review to have the FDA be able to regulate it, and that was definitely one of the, one of the stalling points, I guess, on their ability to regulate the premium cigar industry. Yeah. And I guess like it kind of goes to what you just said. I mean, you, got your, you have all these distribution channels, the shops, the manufacturers. I mean, it's huge. Do, pe- I don't, do you think people sometimes don't realize that? How big it is? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't think they realize it at all, no. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of, I've, I've done a couple posts on the FDA thing, sharing some stuff, and, you know, that's the thing I always mention is that, yes, it is going to impact the consumer in the United States, but let's not forget the big picture here. I mean, literally, right. you know, the way that it's going to affect countries like Nicaragua and the Dominican is going to be mm-hmm. catastrophic. I mean, right. from the farmer to the you know, the guy that processes tobacco to the, the factory. I mean, everything, you know, 95% of SLE revolves around tobacco, you know, and I right. mean, to, to shut down even a, a small percentage of the factories here impacts, you know, the entire city and country so much. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in general, um, kind of going back to what we were talking about, you know, what what do people not know about what we do at the factory? Well, I think the reality is is that, you know, your average consumer um, doesn't really take into account how much goes into actually making a cigar and into that finished product. You know, I love it when, when consumers get to come down to SLE and see everything. You know, it's just such an eye-opening experience on how things work and, you know, how much time and effort goes into every cigar that ends up in the, the retail shop. Well, and I don't even think I don't even think we realized uh, to the extent. I mean, we we both kind of knew, but to the extent that it actually is 
until we got into starting our own cigar, how much really truly goes into all that and the whole process and the, the time frame of all that stuff as well. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big ordeal. It's not just slapping something together and it's on the shelf next week. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, no, exactly. And you know, I, I mean, even talking even to, from the manufacturing standpoint, you know, I mean, we're dealing with a product that we make, you know, and and still have to sit on it for you know upwards of four months, you know, before we get a turnaround on it. So yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 a long, you know, process to to actually, you know, when you're running a. a business to actually get a return on your on your product mm-hmm. it's funny you bring that up because we actually talked about that on an earlier podcast too you know um i think it was dave had said you know if, if there was somebody that came to ask you what you know they wanted to do a cigar what would you tell them and our first our first answer was prepare to have your money tied up because it's going to take a while and i think that's exactly right. You know, that return uh, for you probably takes quite a long time uh, when all things are considered. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, I think that's one thing that people don't realize going into the cigar business is it's a very upfront cash-driven business with a mm-hmm. very slow return on that cash investment. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, even as a brand owner, you know, like you guys, just, just the turnaround on your, your production. You know, from our yeah. standpoint as a manufacturer, you know, we have tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars worth of tobacco that's not going to go into a cigar that we get paid on for, you know, months and months, if not years, you know? Sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like inv- just sitting in inventory. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, that's one thing that is very difficult in this industry is that, you know, you're... you're you spend a lot of cash up front, and it's a long time before it, it returns. Yeah. So, I mean, and I know this is a total dorky question, because, but I'm an accountant, so I guess I'm going to ask it. Um, do you guys, so do you recognize, I guess, your tobacco is recognized ultimately as an asset, though, right? Like on your balance sheet? Like that tobacco you own is an asset, essentially. Yeah, it is. Okay, okay, gotcha. Mo, did you have you have any other questions? I've got a couple things that I'm gonna kind of finish okay. off with once. once Go you're ahead, done. man. I, that that was that dorkiness just finished me <laughs> off. <so. laughs> um, awesome. Okay, James. So, um, what can you tell us? Um, what's in the head uh, ahead for Black Works Black Label in uh, a Via Negra this year and in upcoming years? What do you, what do you got in the works? What can you tell us? Um, for Oveja, you know, it's kind of cool because. You know, we're coming into our, this is our second year in operation, and the great thing with that is, you know, with projects like we're doing for you guys, um, you know, we have a lot of other stuff going for other people, and so that's been a lot of fun to see that grow, um, kind of see the factory stand on its own and, and do a lot of other different projects. Um, so we have some cool stuff coming out for other people with that. Um, for Black Label, uh, what we got coming up, for IPCPR, we're launching a new cigar called the Bishop's Blend, um, and that'll be coming out at the show. It's going to be a limited release for Black Label. Um, we'll also be uh, gearing up for Nocturne to come back in September, um, so we're starting the process with that. And awesome. Obviously, Morphine comes out late May, early June, so we're really excited to get that out there. Um, 
And then for Black Works, um, you know, we're, we're kind of taking it slow with Black Works just because, you know, we just launched it in December and we're still kind of just trying to get those core line sticks out in the market and into more retailers. But we will be doing the, the addition of the Green Hornet at IPCPR also. Awesome. What, what uh, are you, are you able to talk about the Bishop's Blend or is that going to be a surprise type deal? Um, we can talk about it a little bit, yeah. Yeah, man. What? So it's a, yeah, it's just a, a new LE that we're doing. Um, so it's a, it's a really unique stick because we're actually using Connecticut Broadleaf in the filler blend. Um, so really rich, intense cigar. Um, going to be coming out in a five and a half by uh, 48 and a five by 46. Um, okay. So, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, cool. man. Looking forward to it. Okay. Yeah, so it'll be, yeah. like I said, it's a limited release. It'll launch the show and, you know, kind of be here until it's here and then gone. Gotcha. Okay. So we, I've got a couple of, like, for fun questions here um, before we finish up. So sure. the, the first one's going to be if you could have a cigar with anybody, it doesn't have to be anybody in the cigar industry, just anybody dead alive, who would it be and why? Oh man, that's that's tough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've we've shared this before in our podcast, but um, so and, and me and Mo both have several. But I've mentioned uh, we're a big fan of like, and our our blog, if you've ever read it, goes through like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sly. So, I mean, I'd have I'd have a sort uh, a cigar with Schwarzenegger or Sly. Um, just huge fans of them, cigar industry people, uh, man. It have. Uh, I go with Jackson Pollock. Yeah, awesome. Oh, okay. Very awesome. cool. Awesome. Um, okay, so this next one's going to be a killer, and this is from Dave. He texted me <laughs> and said to ask you. So we need your top three favorite cigars from um, either Black Works or Black Label. Your top three favorites. Top three favorites. Um, Black Label is going to be. And it can be com- it can be combined, so three total. Oh, three total. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna go with Deliverance Nocturne, uh, the MBK, the Green Hornet. Okay, so we play this little game here on our podcast, and it's called Stash, Trash, and Ash. So you have to take those three cigars. Stash one means you just hold it back. Trash ones mean you have to you have to throw it away. And ash one means you smoke one. So tell us your three that you would stash trash and ash. <laughs> this is Dave, so blame it on him. I wasn't going to make you do this. <laughs> oh, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to stash the nocturne, ash the MBK. And trash the green hornet. Awesome, we man, we appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you playing Dave's game. Well, it's my game, but Dave wanted you to do it. <laughs> I, I'm the one that made it evil. Um, Mo, do you do you have any other questions here? Uh, James, just wanted to say thank you for you know taking the time to to talk to us today. Uh, we know you're busy. And also for uh, everything you've done with with our cigar, we we certainly appreciate it. I mean, they they turned out fantastic. So thank you. Great, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys.
Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Uh, do you have anything for us? You got anything you want to say? You got any anything? No, I mean, I'm just um, super stoked that the product's out there and, you know, being well-received. So I wish you guys the best of luck on, you know, getting it out into more places and more people's hands. Appreciate it, man. Uh, and then the one last thing is how can people um, either reach you or Black Label? How can, social media-wise, how can people get a hold of you or check out your stuff and see what's coming out and stuff like that? Um, I think Facebook's probably the easiest for us. We do a lot on there, and we always kind of keep it updated with what we're doing and what, what's coming out and events and all those things. So definitely check out our Facebook page. Awesome. Cool. Well, we appreciate you being on with us, man. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. See you.